Hello, and welcome to episode 62 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi there, Jeff. Uh, I heard from a regular listener just this past week that it was slightly disturbing to him that we deviated from my usual introduction, so I'm going to be extra clear from now on. My co-host, as always, is Carl Bialik, which is a little ironic to bring that up now because we might be having a guest host on the show next week going into the French Open, but we'll see about that. Maybe there will be some alternate um, standard language for that. Why don't you just say, as always, for the guest host, too, and keep it interesting? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, logically, tremendously inconsistent, but consistent linguistically, I guess. So we're off to a rolling start here this week. Um, episode 62, we're wrapping up the Rome Masters slash WTA Rome premiere and tons of interesting stuff. We finally had Rafael Nadal breakthrough. We had a big Nadal Djokovic final. Uh, we had some surprise finalists on the women's side and lots of big upsets to talk about there. Um, and we've also had some latest news coming in from Nick Kyrgios and his big podcast appearance. We're going to get there, but we're going to talk about the actual tennis first, um, starting with Nadal Djokovic. So, like I said, Nadal has finally made his breakthrough on clay this season. It's been all semifinal losses so far this season, but he cruised through the Rome draw, came up against Djokovic in the final, and... I mean, it went three sets, but as three-set matches go, he won that pretty easily. So, Carl, this is definitely a step up for Rafa. This is—he was playing better tennis this week than he was on clay thus far, right? Well, that's a loaded question, but yes, absolutely. I mean, he was dominating some of his early matches, including when, like, most of the players he was forced to play two matches in a day, or I guess I shouldn't say most of the players, most of the players who won their first match that day. And he was dominant in the first and third sets against Djokovic, 6-0, 6-1, and could have won that second one. And this is Djokovic coming off of victory in Madrid last week. So very, very impressive Um I guess because everyone else is saying it, including Djokovic, Rafa is the absolute clear French Open favorite. It's just funny to think about where things stood a week ago. I I think you were sure he was still the favorite, and I think I leaned that way. But it's, you know, this is is his fourth clay tournament, so we shouldn't completely discount the first three. Yeah, that's true. Um, he, He did look notably shaky for... Rafa by his standards in in those previous three tournaments at least in the matches that he lost I didn't really see that here so I guess that that's what I'm getting at like you can you can win plenty of matches by being less than 100 percent but I mean Rafa looked pretty strong here I mean one of the talking points that came out of the final was that Djokovic was really tired Um, he played long matches against Del Potro in the quarters and Schwartzman in the semis he worked harder on that day of two matches on Thursday than Rafa did, which is partly his own fault, but still, like that, that means that he came into the final a lot more tired. Uh, he also had the second semifinal on Saturday night, so he had fewer hours of rest and recovery time. So there are some excuses. We could say that, that maybe Djokovic at his best could have beaten Rafa on Sunday, but it looked to me like, like this Nadal was 
was a lot better. And I guess that that's that's what I'm getting at. Like when we're when we looked at the Rafa of the last three tournaments and thought maybe this guy really isn't the Roland Garros final, the Roland Garros favorite rather. Uh, I feel like the guy we saw yesterday in the final, he looks like the favorite again. I mean, did you see anything in that final to? to counter to contradict that 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 any weaknesses that are persisting for this point for rafa i may have been unduly influenced by the commentary but i think your charting of the match also suggests this he seemed to be very aggressive with his court positioning and shot selection in the first set and i mean just poured in winners there weren't that many points in the in the set and he won a good percentage of them, maybe like a third of them um, and more than a third of the points he won with, with winners on a slow clay court against one of the best defenders of all time. And he was doing it by like stepping into the court, taking balls early, taking balls high, hitting the lower percentage shot that he can still turn into a high percentage shot uh, to wrong foot Djokovic. And I felt like he backed off and backed up in the last two sets and that if Djokovic had been more accurate with the shots in the third set, it could have been a pretty close match at the end. But, you know, I'm talking about a, a what-if scenario against the player that he couldn't possibly meet until the final. So it's not really a big trouble spot. I just think more generally, I'd, I'd like to know what the numbers say about what if we shuffled the order of these masters? What if Rome was the first one? and Nadal played the way he did at each of these four tournaments. Um, does it matter that Rome is the most recent? It feels like it should, of course, but I'm just wondering like, to what extent does the fact that it's the last of the four make it more predictive? Well, I feel like this is a question you'd be asking me, but do we, do we know that Rome is more predictive? Or are you asking if we should think it is? Well, sorry, I'm I'm assuming that premise because I think the tennis world does, and also because I sort of took it from some of the phrasing of your questions. No, I I, I don't know, um, and I don't know if anyone's really studied it. Yeah, probably not. Um, I I remember I looked at the at the relationship between Cincinnati and the U.S. Open a few years ago, and I don't remember if I found anything significant there which means I probably didn't if nothing sticks out. But that's sort of a similar situation where you have back-to-back masters. Uh, one of them is two weeks before the Grand Slam starts and the one, the, the closest masters on the calendar, Cincinnati or, or Rome, is probably the closest in terms of conditions. I, I think that's fair to say. I mean, certainly Rome is a better proxy for the French Open than Madrid is. I'm not sure if Rome is any better uh, or any closer in terms of conditions and surface than Monte Carlo. Uh, But I mean, it's close, definitely. Like Cincinnati is close for the U.S. Open with with reasonably fast courts and and the humidity. Um, But yeah, it's unclear whether there's a a particular tie there. I mean, I didn't want to jump straight to the women's final right now, but it would be pretty unexpected if the the women's final in Rome of Pliskova and Joanna, Joanna Conta turned out to be very predictive of, of Roland Garros. But Nadal, Nadal Djokovic has a much, much better chance there. Uh, I mentioned already the, the issue of Djokovic being tired, having played a lot coming into the final. Do you think that was a significant factor in the final? Well, I think this is another one that we found hard to answer analytically just because... 
first of all, how do you separate out fatigue from the cause of the fatigue being indicative of the player's level? Like if Djokovic barely beat Del Pocho and Schwartzman, granted two tough opponents, but if he barely beat them and and that contributed to his fatigue, then maybe it meant that he wasn't playing as well as Nadal even before the final. Um, on the other hand, he also had the much later semifinal. And this this is the second part of what makes this hard analytically. It, that is not really re- readily available from what I understand for most matches. You may have access to some things now that make it more available, but generally we don't even know uh, from the official match stats which day a match happened, let alone what time it did. So it's a little hard to to tease out. But I don't think there was evident fatigue in the final unless it was just pushing Djokovic to, to try to end points with low percentage shots because he was bailing out because he was tired. But um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't obvious in the way it, it is for some matches. Okay, I did. Maybe I was looking for it too much, but I did think Djokovic looked tired in the first set. Um, and I, I think that does explain some of the tactics you're talking about. Like you've already hinted at that. But Djokovic was coming in a little bit more than he normally would, so he was making an effort to shorten points, and that opened up the opportunities for Nadal to end points. But on your, your comment about the data availability, yeah, we... we we don't have a complete set even of what day matches were played, let alone what time. But that is getting better. I'm not collecting the data, but one one of the websites that does a good job of aggregating all this stuff is Flash Score, and, and Flash Score does record the date and time of every match. And I think we talked about this once last year, and one of our listeners followed up and did sort of a, a mini study on this. And uh, once again, unfortunately, I can't remember what the conclusions were. Uh, but even if, if we were just to look at semifinals and finals, there's almost always going to be the semifinals at different times. So maybe they won't be as separated as, as these two. I guess at men-only tournaments, they'll generally be back-to-back. Uh, so there might only be a two-hour difference. But at every tournament, there will be some difference. So I guess if you had the the times of the semifinals, you could run a re- regression with ELO scores and see whether like the uh, whether the time of the semis and the implied difference in rest time had any influence on the result over and above what we'd expect from from ELO scores. That would still leave us open to the the point you bring up that there could be some form issues going on that are uh, revealed by how much time players are spending on court. There's plenty of things you you could potentially add to the analysis as well, but. At least it's 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 possible. We we have that data going back a few years now, even if it's not in a convenient open database form. I'd be really interested in an extreme case where one player has to play sort of a play in match in a day to face an opponent who already won their match the day before. So you've got like a really big difference in recency of last match. And maybe that, I mean, that would be quite a smaller sample, but it might give you, if the effect doesn't exist there, then it seems unlikely to exist the other way. Yeah, that's true. And I guess you do get some of those from the the big day in Rome on Thursday. There weren't very many people who only had the one match, but there were a few. Uh, and I think, I think Schwartzman was one who, who fought through that. Like he had to play... He had to play his way into the round of 16 in the morning, and then he played, I think he played Matteo Berrettini 
in the in the round of 16 after that and Berrettini didn't have to play in the morning he had played his match before the rain uh but Schwartzman got through that that's obviously that's just an anecdote it doesn't answer your question but uh but that would be interesting the the other sort of a more extreme example is the cases at Grand Slams where the the men's semifinals are on different days uh well they'll, they'll do one on Thursday and one on Friday and then the finals on on Sunday and I remember from years ago, uh, the commentator sharing a stat there that the the player who had had the the Thursday semifinal had had won like ten of the last eleven or something. I'm just making that up, but it was really a, a really extreme swing in one direction. And part of that might have been because that was always the top half of the draw, so that was always the number one seed. I mean, we need a lot more data to really draw any conclusions from that, but. Uh, but that's another another case where there's a big difference in possible recovery time. Well, not a giant difference percentage-wise, though. Well, probably a bigger difference than the number of hours in the semifinals in Rome. Like if if the basically you're looking at 72 hours instead of 48, and Rafa and Novak were looking at well, I guess it's about the same maybe 24 hours versus 16. So it's the same yeah. ratio. And I mean, there's also a question of, is there diminishing returns? It could work the other way, I guess. But, you know, is how much better is three days than two? I, I would guess not very much, but, um, but maybe, I don't know. I mean, players take off whole weeks to recover. So maybe, maybe every day counts and maybe it even, the effect compounds. Uh, yeah, I mean, we just need more data. You know, when I hear 10 of the last 11, I think, oh, so what did the previous five do? <laughs> you know, why did you cut it off there? And I, I think when there was a similar stat about, you know, who got the first men's semi um, when the U.S. Open used to have like that Super Saturday format. Yeah. Um, that it was it was a wash. Um, hmm. Not as extreme of a difference in, I mean, it was extreme for both players because they were going to play the next day. But yeah, I I think it was not an advantage. And maybe it was partly because of this number one seed factor flipping the other way. I mean, could that be because all those years they did the two semis on Saturday, they were constantly having to push the final back to Monday? So it kind of canceled (laughs) out the difference? Yeah, I think they were um, including lots of Sunday years. But yeah, there was like a five-year streak. And I remember because it it changed my plans all five of those years quite dramatically. Yeah, I remember that five-year stretch too because every single year I thought, wow, all these people are being inconvenienced and thus can't go to the final. Therefore, there must be great deals on the secondary market. And then discovering no. There were not great deals on the secondary market. Everyone was still going, and tickets were still really expensive. So I, I went through that cycle five years in a row. I did have two friends who once just showed up at the stadium and got good, someone was standing outside dumping them. Um, I do, but it did seem like a lot of people just left work early on Monday. Like they scheduled it for four thirty, and the the stadium filled up at about six, which is pretty sad for a final. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's the U.S. Open final. If you've got a ticket, you're going to go. Um, so let's see one more thing I wanted to talk about with Djokovic is he hit a lot of drop shots in the final and it was bad I mean I I had the numbers pulled up a second ago I think he he won like one third of the points that he he hit drop shots on 
Um, sorry for the clicking, but I'm going to... I remember that. 39%. 39% is right. So, okay, here are our numbers. He hit 18 drop shots. Um, seven of them were in points that he won. 11 were in points that he lost. Of the 18, five went for winners. Six were unforced errors. And to put some context on that, the the average player gets winners on about a quarter of their drop shots. And he did that. So he hit the right number or the, the usual number of winners. But he hit twice as many unforced errors as usual. And the typical player win, wins a little bit more than half the points in which they hit a drop shot. Uh, and he won, like you say, 39%. So not a great performance. Uh, I mean, one explanation for that could always be the situations he's choosing to hit them in. Either just poor choices or he's hitting them more as defensive shots, which is always going to be a losing proposition against Nadal. It, do you think Do you think this is more situational or do you think this is just a, a bad day for Novak's drop shot? It definitely seemed like he was off on his calibration. Like he just hit, he hit it into the net a lot. And and there were two that I remember specifically thinking that may never have cleared the height of the net. So it was like these flat slicey, you know, which is not the right way to hit a drop. I mean, you can, there are advantage, there are times when you do want to hit kind of a low slicey ball, but the intent was clearly drop shot um, from the, from the depth of the shot. (laughs) <laughs> the lack of the depth of the shot, um, the shallowness. You know, it's funny, though, looking at the numbers and thinking about it more, it does really strike me how little we're talking about in raw totals. Like, if, if these numbers shifted by one or two here or there, then we wouldn't have even noticed. and It would be maybe mediocre, but not abysmal, um, which maybe gets at, like, the actual impact to the match. Um it also strikes me that, you know, he if he won on if he hit thirty nine percent of them on points he won, well, he was losing most of the points. So whatever he was doing, I mean, th- this just blows me away. Twenty eight percent of his top spinner flat backhands were in points he won. And almost all of his drop shots, all but one of his drop shots were backhands. So like the alternative he was choosing against was the slice, which he never hit. He hit two. Or, you know, his usual backhand ground stroke, which is probably the best backhand of all time, uh, but it wasn't working. So, you know, it, it's it's in that context that it, it stinks a little less. The one other thing that makes it stink even less for me is just thinking of some of the situations in which he hit them. And, you know, Rafa, one of the things Rafa does so well on clay is getting opponents on or wide of the sidelines so that even if they come up with a good shot, they've left their almost their entire court open width-wise. And I think a lot of Djokovic's backhand drop shots came when he was drawn pretty wide in situations where he didn't have too many good options. So you usually think of drop shots as an aggressive shot that you hit when you have lots of options and you're ahead in the point. But when I think of the other things Djokovic tried on some of those short, wide balls to his backhand, they generally didn't work that well either. So that so you're leaning more on the, the tactical side, that it wasn't that technically something's wrong with his drop shot. I mean, there were some cases there were, but often he wasn't going to win the point anyway. It was... It was just he was behind in the point, or or like he was not behind in the point against most mortals, but with where Rafa put him and the reason Rafa put him there, he was behind in the point. 
Yes. So I agree with you there. Um, another shot we talk about a lot with Djokovic is the smash, and he managed to miss a couple of those in the match as well. And I always like to talk about the smash because I've done a lot of work on that in the past and used the match charting project data to get a sense of, of not only who hits them well and who doesn't, but also how much they can potentially matter. Like if having a good smash versus a mediocre smash will have like X effect on your winning percentage or, or a certain effect on your ranking. Um, and it's pretty small, but it's, it's something like I, I I can't remember what my headline finding was, but the difference between being a mediocre or average smasher versus being Joe Wilfred Songa, who I think was the the best smash player on tour, um, I mean it's worth at least a few spots in the rankings. It's worth something. And I would you think that the 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 difference between having a mediocre drop shot and being the best drop shotter on tour is Similar to that, greater than that. Ooh, I didn't see that twist at the end. Back to the drop shot. Um, I think it's probably greater because it's a little bit more in your control. I mean, your opponent has to give you a short ball for it to be a good option, but. I just feel like short balls happen naturally more often than. And, and and you can kind of, like, force them more often than you can, like, be guaranteed a smash. Um, I mean, I think some players don't get smashes because they have good smashes, and so opponents go for harder shots than lobs or shots that are generally less likely to work in that situation. But, yeah, it just, it just seems like if you... Um, if you have a terrible smash, then I guess opponents can try to, like, set it up for you to hit one. But if you have a terrible drop shot, you can just holster it for the most part and use other tactics but if you have a really good drop shot you can find ways to hit a whole lot of them in a match so i guess i think the number of drop shots ranges more widely between players and so the the players with really good ones can can make it a really big part of their game yeah and that's one thing that's surprising with with djokovic's performance yesterday is he chose to make it a big part of the game i mean it's still a small number of shots compared to the total number of shots you hit in a match but he hit 18 of them so by comparison probably the the most impressive drop shot performance of the entire week was marquette vandrusheva's upset of simona halep and the highlight reel is just drop shot after drop shot, partly because her drop shot is outstanding. I mean, she manages to get a, a ton of backspin on the shot. She, she never seems to miss them. And at least in that match, she really didn't. She won 18 of the 21 points she, she hit drop shots in. Uh, but my point is that like, that match was, I think, even a little bit longer in terms of number of points than the Nadal Djokovic match. And Djokovic hit almost as many drop shots. So... I, I I follow your logic, and this is something we come back to a lot. That that it's not so much the percentage, but how often you hit them. So if if Von Drusheva was winning ninety percent of her drop shot points, that probably means she should have been hitting them even more often to to bring that number down to maybe not down to her average points one rate, but but closer just to take more advantage of a good weapon. But Djokovic seemed to be going back to the well on something that was worse, at least neutral compared to other options. Um, which is a, a bit baffling in this context that that it doesn't seem to follow the logic of of using your 
using your superior skills more often. I mean, is there something I'm I'm missing here with that or with Djokovic's performance yesterday? No, I don't think you're missing. I mean, I think that, you know, one thing that I don't think you're implying, but just to, just to say it, and we've talked about it before, like players don't have the running match stats in their head. So he must have remembered, God, I've hit a lot into the net, but he probably also remembered the winners. Um, and he may, if he was off by just a couple, then he might have thought, okay, this isn't working great, but it's not terrible. I guess I'll keep doing it to the extent that it was conscious. Um, but, you know, I also think we, we really want to see if we're thinking of players as being fairly analytical, even if unconsciously, then it would make more sense for them to think of all their prior work or at least all their prior work against this player. And maybe on balance in recent matches against Nadal, the drop shot has been effective for Djokovic. So he could have thought, well, you know, it hasn't worked so well the last few points, but it's worked well the last 30 times I've tried it against Nadal across all matches. So it's the right move and I shouldn't I shouldn't shift away from it. The, the one other thought I have is not analytical, but just that we've see, we see lots of players who do things that aren't in their best interest in terms of winning points because for some reason they just like like doing it like they get more pleasure from that kind of winner than they do from others so it's worth it to them even if they lose more points and there are certain shots that Djokovic is obviously an incredibly efficient player who's very tactically sound but there are some decisions he makes that seem more like because this is this is really cool than because this is um, the right shot I'm saying he has a little bit of curios in him and this is one of those things. I think that he just really likes the feeling of pulling off a really nice drop shot or drop volley that bounces really close to the net and then turns sideways. And that that feels so good that he will chase that feeling. And this is completely speculative and just based on watching, you know, probably hundreds of his matches. But um, that that's a hunch I have that every player has a little bit of that in them. And I, I think back to a New York Times article about the drop shot years ago in which Jurgen Meltzer described like hitting a really good one and then continuing to hit drop shots afterwards because that one felt so good, even when you know consciously it's, it's a bad decision. Interesting. And I, as you were saying that, I was looking up Djokovic's career uh, drop shot success rates. You highlighted that he might have been, he might have been more successful against Nadal in the past uh, and we have a, I mean, it would be nice if I could split up the numbers like this and look at just his matches against Nadal, because we have them all charted, but I don't have a, a quick way of pulling up those numbers. But I, I can talk about his career average over the 284 charted matches we have. And in so the, the stat I keep referring to is the percentage of, of drop shots that are being hit in points one. So on average... If a player hits a drop shot, it, there's a 55% chance that's in a shot in a point they're winning. Um, it, for Djokovic, yesterday that was 39%, not so great. For Djokovic in his career, it's 51%, 50% on clay, so a little bit below the tour average. Um, the percentage of winners per drop shot, um, tour average is 23%, 24% on clay. Djokovic is 17%. So that could be because he's going to the well more often than the average player and maybe not always in in the most best selected situations but it could be that his drop shot isn't that great and maybe he should know that better 
um, after all these years of using it. And maybe it's because of your reasoning that, or your speculation that um, he just really likes to hit it and he's willing to take a few lost points for the, the joy of occasionally getting a drop shot. I mean, certainly in many of his matches, he has points to spare. So that could be going on. A little showboating could affect the, the stat line over the course of a career. Yeah, and, you know, as in yesterday's match, for his career, the vast majority of his drop shots are backhand drop shots, and he hits he win he hits them only forty nine percent of the time in uh, in points he wins, and he hits just his regular backhand ground stroke fifty two percent of the time in points he wins. So he's definitely got an inverted ratio. I know we say like if you're doing really well at something, do more of it so that you take advantage of it even if your overall success rate goes down. But in this case, it's it's looks like he's gone too far. Yeah, and as, as you were alluding to earlier, comparing it to the Smash, it's, it's a lot more difficult of a thing to analyze just because some drop shot situations are so different from others. So if, if someone like Marketa Vondrusheva is winning 90% of their, their drop shot points, then it could be that she's just taking her most offensive advantageous positions and hitting drop shots there. That isn't entirely the case. I mean, I, I've watched enough Vondrusheva to know that's not the case with her. But if you see someone who, you know, goes three for three over the course of a match for drop shots, those are probably situations where they could have hit a forehand winner or an approach shot that set up a volley winner. Like, they probably had those points in the bag. But when you get to somebody who's hitting 20 over the course of a match, then they're doing something else and they're probably not going to have the same success rate on it. So it isn't, I mean, even smashes have their own complications with who's choosing to hit them and when, but uh, it's a lot more straightforward than drop shot analysis would be. And the usual refrain here is it would be great to have the, the Hawkeye data to know exactly what the situations are, but uh, without that, it, it makes for a lot more complicated thing to sort out. Jeff, let me just give one potential defense for Djokovic. It's possible that some of these are redrops, that he's being brought forward because players don't want to hang with him from the baseline, and that then he responds with a drop shot. So the, those can be more defensive than the average drop shot. That is true. Yeah, we could break those out. I also am not exactly sure how I'm counting shots in these numbers because, in general, I don't count forced errors Uh so I'm pretty sure that the 18 drop shots don't count any, like, redrops that didn't get back over the net. I think I would almost always call those a, a forced error. Um, but to your point, even if you do get the redrop back over the net, it's usually not in your favor. So that would be valuable to, to split out. I mean, it might even be interesting just to know who's getting more redrops back over the net since... In general, that's not an easy thing to do. I would guess that the majority of attempts are fails. Um, so anything else we should talk about on the, Ooh, I know one more thing about the final I wanted to talk about. Uh, I had never noticed this before, but Rafael Nadal has added a new tick to his art, to his arsenal of ticks. Would you call it an arsenal if it's that, um, they were using the serve clock in Rome and he was obsessed with the serve clock. Um, and it was not in a great position for him, so he had to keep glancing over his shoulder to, to see what the surf clock said. It seemed like Carlos Bernardes was starting it really, really late because it would feel like time was running out and Nadal would look over a couple times and the camera would look, would look over and there was still 
12 seconds remaining or something. Um, but have you noticed that before Rafa focused on the clock that much? No. Um, and, and it's interesting because the, the broadcast showed his average time between points and it was up around the 30 second mark. So, um, I mean, it fits with the theory we've talked about before. The players will just play all the way till the end of the serve clock if you give them that much time in front of them. Um, but, you know, this is this is a new wrinkle where the clock is also, you know, like adding to that time because it's another tick. Yeah, that's a, a weird development. And I think this, this was a, a pretty extreme case because I think Carlos Bernardes was waiting absolutely as long as possible to start the clock every point because I, I saw the same graphic I think you're talking about at one point they showed I think Nadal was at 32 seconds between points and Djokovic was at 28 I could have those backwards but clearly if they're doing that and you're seeing 10 seconds on the shot clock then there's some seconds that aren't being accounted for and I think that's just because uh, we're giving the giving the clock a lot of time while letting the crowd calm down and then calling the score kind of late uh, but have I, I don't even know the answer to this question. Ha, have there been serve clocks at the other clay court events? I think I've seen them recently, but I, I couldn't tell you which events. Uh, but it does seem like the norm rather than the exception now. Yeah, the WTA has made it official. I think it, the, they're using the serve clock at least at all premier events this year. Uh but I don't think the ATP has done that. It's maybe still on a tournament-by-tournament basis. Um, so it's a, a bit inconsistent from week to week. And you wonder with someone who's as mm, regimented in, in his habits as Nadal, if that could be affecting him one way or the other. Um, oh, like maybe it's one of the factors contributing to disappointing results at his first three events? I mean, it, it it seems like it would it would be a lot of weight to put on a serve clock or lack thereof, but I don't know. I'm not used to watching Nadal lose matches on clay, so we've got to look deeper. By the way, remember the history between Nadal and Carlos Bernardes? Oh, yes. It's So, you know, he, Nadal has, has said that he, in fact, as reported, asked for Bernardes to be banned from his matches, and having such a powerful figure in the sport call for that for you, an umpire who is not powerful. I mean, it's got to unconsciously affect your decision-making, right? You would think so. Bernardus did call a time violation warning on Nadal. It was pretty early in the match. Maybe it was even at three love in the first set. I'm, I, I think I'm wrong about that, but, um, but it was after a changeover. Uh, and I've noticed, it, it seems like umpires are calling that one more than they are in between points. But yeah, that's a, a weird situation. And I, I remember a, a few years ago, Anametric made the point that, uh, that I think she was just saying that Nadal, had, the, Nadal and other top players have way too much power. That you have someone like Bernardus who's literally doing his job. And because the person he's he's officiating over disagrees or doesn't like the, the the conclusions he's drawing then that can affect his career i mean not to the over the period of time where where bernardes wasn't calling any nadal matches like there there's a lot of big matches that he's being excluded from like masters finals and slam finals and those are the sort of things that are the pinnacle of the tennis umpiring profession 
And that's what disagreeing with Rafael Nadal costs you. And I'm sure that would be the case with, with Federer and probably Djokovic as well. I just, that was the, uh, the highest profile player umpire dispute I'm aware of. So let's see. It seems like they are on at least better terms or at least neutral terms now since I've seen Bernardes do several of the last few Nadal matches, including once he's won and lost, but always something to keep an eye on. So let's pivot over to the women's final. I, I mentioned earlier we've had a, had some surprise finalists in Karolina Pliskova and Johanna Kanta. We talked about Kanta a few weeks ago when she made the Rabat final, and our, our conclusion was that maybe we were we were concluding too much about her clay court prowess based on making the final of an international. We didn't want to go too far with that. But here she is in the final of uh, a premiere, a very competitive premiere event. Uh, Pliskova has said she was even a little surprised herself. She didn't count herself as a favorite going into this tournament since it's not really her surface. But she's had a series of pretty solid results on clay over the years. I mean, not, not consistently, but she won Stuttgart's, one of the last couple of years, she's had some decent results at Roland Garros. Now she has the Rome title. Uh, we were talking about this before the podcast. I'm springing this on Carl a little bit unexpected. So might have to go based on our overall knowledge of Pliskova's game. But I mean, is there anything in particular that makes Pliskova unsuited to winning matches on clay? I don't really see one. I mean, I think maybe there's some, just sometimes players are themselves not as confident on clay or other people aren't as confident in them because they're, they don't look as confident with their feet and her, her footwork doesn't seem like the sort of natural clay footwork, but it seemed like it, it worked really well for her. And, you know, it's not like she was like slipping and, not able to sort of stand and deliver her shots the way she does. So, you know, maybe it's like similar to the Sharapova story on clay where, you know, very tall, powerful player doesn't seem suited to the surface, figures out how to make it work for her and figures out that power works quite well on clay too. Yeah. And one of the things we've, we've talked about the last few weeks that's a, a good clay court skill is opening the court, hitting, hitting wide serves to start the point by pushing the, the, the opponent out of position. And that's what Pliskova does on all surfaces. I mean, she, I think the best thing she does with her size is, is take advantage of that wide serve to get, give her a better court position. And that, that might be more valuable on clay than on hard court, don't you think? Yeah, Absolutely. And she also, you know, one of one of my favorite things to see in her points is when she gets a short ball, moves forward, takes it up high, and then hits it behind the opponent. And she loves doing that on all surfaces, and that also works really well on clay. Yeah, and especially against someone like Johanna Kanta, because whatever negative things you can say about Pliskova's footwork on clay, you can say them times three about Kanta. She did not look comfortable at all in the final Um I didn't get to see any of her earlier matches. She must have been doing something right to beat Kiki Burton's in the, the semifinal, but um, that it, she did not look that comfortable on the surface. And I think I would agree Pliskova's footwork is not terribly convincing. She doesn't look like she's super comfortable on clay, but she also doesn't look 
that great in that department of her game in general. I mean, she wins despite not being the best mover or having the best footwork, uh, not not because it's particularly good on hard courts. So I was really impressed. You know, I, I think about footwork and getting to the ball, and, and it's something we talk about, but I was impressed also in the final at how she's developed in terms of once she gets to a tough ball and she's on defense, which isn't what we think of as her strength, that she makes more balls than I remember her making, that she, you know, like uses the forehand and backhand slices to keep the points alive and get them deep. So uh, footwork can get you to the ball, but it's also about what you do with the racket when you get there. Yeah, and I think this is the number one thing that I would want to study if I were gifted with a large tranche of Hawkeye data is one of my pet theories is that what you just said about Pliskova is true of all of the really elite ball basher types like Serena, Azarenka, Sharapova above all. Like We think of them and hitting big winners, going for the lines, super aggressive play. But when, when they have to play defensive, I think they're tremendously good defenders. And that gives them an opportunity to hit the aggressive shot the next time around and maybe they just look that way because they don't have the the great movement or great footwork that someone like a Simona Halep does so maybe it looks like they're hitting a kind of Hail Mary defensive shot when Simona would already be there and and hitting a more standard type shot that wouldn't look so defensive but I think there's more to it than that and I with the Hawkeye data we'd be able to dig into like we'd, we'd be able to quantify how tough certain situations are and, and get a sense of how players respond to them. Uh, but that's definitely a big part of clay, probably a, a bigger part on clay than it is on hard courts. And, and you're right. I think Pleshkov is very resourceful, um, using the slice on both sides and keeping herself in points. Uh, and she's not super aggressive. And I noticed in the final even against Kanta, who herself is pretty aggressive, on Pliskova's serve, the average rally was 3.8 shots, which I think is even a little bit higher than tour average. And in general, she doesn't come out as one of the super aggressive players on tour. Maybe she could be more aggressive. Some commentators seem to want her to, to do that and take more advantage of the serve. But she seems to play within herself more than, than the other big-time aggressive players. Uh, and at least in this case, seems to be working. Yeah, and you know, one thing to say for for Kanta because if we, whenever we look at the the last match a player played at a tournament, unless unless she won, it's going to look bad. Um, if she does have such bad footwork on clay and is still making two finals on a surface she's never particularly been been good at, that seems like even if it doesn't bode amazing things at Roland Garros, it bodes pretty well for the grass and hardcourt seasons to come. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the first time we've even had real any good reason to talk about Joanna Conta for, I don't know, at least a year, maybe more. So it's a, a big step forward. So uh, I want to talk about our, our, our weekly Roland Garros favorites update. And before we started recording, I was just I was trying to think of who the list of players are who Let's start with the men. I want to come back to the women in a second. But it seems like the list of people who could conceivably, conceivably is too strong of a word, too extreme of a word, who we would have any reason to predict would win Roland Garros is extremely small. So if we start with, let's say, Nadal, Djokovic, Dominic Thiem, um, 
mean, who else do you think should even be in the conversation? Tsitsipas. Okay. Uh, I mean, I guess Vavrinka, because what he's done in the past, but he hasn't done that much this season to to warrant it. But yeah, I tend to just put past French Open champs in there, which makes me also at least mention Federer, although I guess we don't even know if he's going to play. And Andres Gomez? <laughs> well, I think Borg has the best chance of all. Okay. Um, and is that it? That's kind of what I was thinking. So is you have what, to dig what's so our cutoff? Like 3%? 2%? I know we're using words, not numbers, but I'm trying to understand them as numbers. Well, let's, machine. let's say 1%. Like, who would you who would you put a dollar on if you could get a hundred to one odds? Like, like it's it's one thing to theoretically say like okay, I'll bet when my, when when I run my forecast, Fabio Fanini is going to have a one point three percent chance or something. But would you put a dollar on him at a hundred to one to win the French Open? Yeah, sure. That sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not the yeah, point. It's not? not about fun, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is I'm, just about exercise. maximizing my cash. Got it. Yes. Um, yeah. Pretend you uh, don't have a dollar to burn. If if Fonini had 1.3% in Jeff's forecast, I would trust Jeff's forecast. I'm not sure he'll have 1.3%. The next two I was going to say, if we're, if we're cutting it off at 1%, the other two I'd include are uh, Zverev and Nishikori. Yeah, I, I still have a hard time with Nishikori. I know he's had some really solid clay court results over the years, but I still... I still don't totally buy it on on clay courts. Um, and Zverev, I suppose, yeah, we have to keep him in the conversation. I guess, yeah, it's 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 tough to know where to draw the line on this list because, I mean, when you talk about really having a shot at winning, are we talking about five percent or three percent or one percent? Like like you say, um, it just seems like that maybe it's just because we've seen Rafael Nadal win so much, especially at Roland Garros. It's it's almost inconceivable to imagine somebody besides Djokovic knocking him off of his perch. Um, but it seems like there's a really small group of people who are our potential winners, um, even, even if we start pushing it to the, the Faninis and, and Nishikoris of the world. So that said, on the men's side, how many names are on the women's list? I mean, is it tw- if we set the bar at the same 1%, are we talking 20 names? You know, this is why I think once or twice you referred to the women's final in Rome as a surprise matchup. And I guess you could say Kanta in any scenario on a clay premier final is, is a surprise. But the, the the probabilities and the ratings and the ranking points are so tightly bunched on the WTA that, you know, you could like if you chose any two names from the top group at random, you'd say, well, that's a surprise. We didn't expect those exact two names, but we, pro- we expected two names from that group. So... It makes it less surprising. Yeah, so if we're, if we're saying 1%, probably like 15. Okay. Yeah, I... I, um, I mate, that seems a little high. I would... 10. I'll be curious to see what my forecast says when, I, when the draw comes out. I would, I would be surprised if it's as low as 10. I mean, I would guess if you want to... If you want to pick 10 names right now, I guarantee you I can come up with a plausible 11th one. Okay. Well, I mean, just for full disclosure to listeners, and because they should all be using your site 
at least as much as I am. Um, I, I'm just, you know, looking at the Clay Elo rankings right now. I'm not exactly following them, but it's a really good start. So, you know, Halep, of course, defending champ, still by far the best on Clay, uh, despite not having a great Clay season. And then Burton's Kvitova. I guess I'll include Muguruza for my point about, you know, past champs, but I don't know. Uh, Pliskova, sure. What am I up to now? Five? That's um, five. I'll put Sloane Stevens in there as the past finalist. Svitolina is a very disappointing year on clay, but still a strong record. Um, because we just talked about her amazing drop shots and beating Halep, I'll say Vondrusova. Um, I, I, I got to say Osaka because she won the last two slams. And then Serena. I was hoping you'd forget about Serena, so I'd have a really easy answer that, <laughs> after your ten. That's that's a pretty good ten. It's it's not quite as open as I as I would have thought. I mean, one one you could throw in there is is Maria Sakari. She's right at the end yep. of the Elo. She list. was my eleventh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she won in she won in Rabat. She made the semis in Rome. Uh, Madison Keys won Charleston. It, hasn't she been in a French Open semi? Yep, I think last year. So I I would put her I would I would happily take that bet at hundred to one. Um, yep. I mean Caroline Garcia, maybe not. Maybe that's that's too much of a stretch. I might take Azarenka at hundred to one. Yeah, yeah, she was another one I had trouble leaving out. So in terms of the um, the the clay ratings, the clay elo ratings, the two highest rated we haven't mentioned are Wozniacki and Mladenovic. Yeah, and Mladenovic seems like a lot of that must come from her upset in Rome. And was it Muguruza that she beat in Rome? I just remember... Uh, she that... she uh, beat Garcia, Bencic, and Bardi. It was Bardi that was her first top 10 win in a really long time. Okay, so actually not quite as good as I thought. Um, it seems like it would be a big ask for her to... to, to Especially since we've seen enough of her over the years, to we kind of feel like we we know what we're getting with Mladenovic. Of course, with somebody like Vondrusheva, it could be her breakthrough, a la Ostapenko, although with a very different game style. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to revisit this when we do have a draw in probably probably on Friday, and we can we can see what the one percent threshold is. Just three other names that uh, to mention that we didn't say too are. Um, Ostapenko, past champ, we've talked about her struggles, and then two players who we don't think of as really strong on clay, but have had some decent results, well, Kanta, we just talked about, but not in this context, and, and Barty. So, yeah, 15 seems possible. Yeah. And if 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 only players with one-handed backhands were allowed to compete, Carlos Suarez Navarro would be a huge favorite. <laughs> Always my favorite. And, I mean, there's always Monica Nicolescu. You can't not mention Monica Nicolescu. So, let's see. Um, so we will come back to... Well, I guess you probably won't be with me in the next episode, Carl. But it'll be interesting, like I say, just to see what the numbers are. Especially on the men's side. Um, because 
Nadal won't have as much of an edge as he's had in some some past years, and maybe that will open the door for some more one percent chances at the, the tail end that we should be paying more attention to. Um, but I promised at the outset that we were going to talk about Nick Kyrgios, so let's do that in our remaining ten minutes or so. So Nick was on Ben Rothenberg's No Challenges Remaining podcast, and they had a long and wide-ranging conversation about all sorts of things like, um, well, Carl, you, you listened to it. I haven't listened to it yet. Um, what what got all this attention for Nick Kyrgios in this conversation? I think a lot of it was hearing his opinion of Nadal and Djokovic. Um, and, and, pro- and some of it was also, I, 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 lis- I listened, spent more time listening than listening to the reaction. So I can't tell you exactly which parts people reacted to, but my best guess is those criticisms of those two guys. And then, um, just like describing the extremity of his lack of, I don't want to say professionalism because that's very loaded, but his his lack of standard preparation for tennis matches, including going out drinking every night during Acapulco, which is a tournament he won. Yeah, that's, um, that is a strike against the conventional wisdom for how match preparation is supposed to work. Uh, and one thing that maybe made, gave his comments even more punch is, I think the day after this podcast came out, he played Kasparud in Rome and managed to get himself defaulted by the, I'm not sure what all the steps were of the various violations, but it ended with him throwing a chair. So good for Norwegian tennis, not so good for Nick Kyrgios since Kasper's up to a career high of 63 in the world, but he's definitely gotten a lot of attention. Sometimes it seems like that is his goal more than his goal is to be the best tennis player he can be. And the debate that always arises whenever Nick makes this kind of news off the court is whether he's good for the game. And Nick seems to feel pretty strongly that he is good for the game. Lots of people think he is. The The traditionalists who like their tennis players, quite quiet and hardworking, they disagree. You still feel like like tennis is better because we have Nick Kyrgios as part of it, right? I do. I... I think one thing I think he said in this interview, or if not has said elsewhere, is is true. Is people want to see his matches? They want to sh- they want to show up for his matches. They he's one of the few draws in the sport, and I think that rubs some people the wrong way because it doesn't line up with his ranking. But that that would not make him the first who is uh, appealing beyond ranking on both the men's and women's side. Um, and, I, you know, I think he also, what, he called himself a genius on the podcast, and I'm sure that also rubs some people the wrong way. You're not supposed to call yourself that. But his point was that he changes up his game in a way that is meant to destabilize his opponents and and does it very consciously and thinks players should be more willing to try different things than they are. And I'm not saying every choice he makes is genius and certainly, you know, destroying his, his match and some physical objects along the way is not genius, but, um, I found it gratifying to hear that he's actually thinking of it that way, that it's not just like 
improvisational and uh, and random. And, you know, some of it may be post hoc rationalization for some of the choices he makes on court. But um, I, I think you could make the case that he's a genius and that, at least that he's very creative and willing to try things other players won't. And all of that to me is is good for the game. I don't think what he did to exit Rome was good. Um, and I think a lot of what he said on the podcast was also not good. But on the other hand, he's doing a podcast. By the way, clarification, Courtney Nguyen also co-host the podcast but was not on that episode it's and then he spoke very openly about what he thought about things and that also is not typical in tennis so for all those reasons I think on balance he's still good for the game for the sake of the game and for himself I hope he he shifts the balance even more um, but I don't know if we can really expect that yeah that was you know, anticipating my next question is I I, I think I agree I mean d- definitely tennis gets more attention when its players get more attention. And as long as he isn't you know, getting attention by being a serial killer or something, then that's probably a good thing. Uh, especially the part you talk about, like, like just innovating how players play the game. And we were already seeing challenger players throw in underhand serves and, and people are paying attention and people are learning from Curios's tactics and it's going to make everyone better in the long run. Uh, but thinking about, about him... There, there is this trend. It, it seems like it's been a trend in the lab, maybe the last fifteen or twenty years that players and sports have become increasingly media savvy and media aware. And a big part of that is what we see, especially from from the big four. They're very buttoned down. Like they're they're very aware of their brand. Um, they're careful what they say. They they rarely say negative things about the other people. They they rarely say anything with too much substance at all. And it, it's easy to dislike that because we, we want to get into their heads. We want to know them better. We want to, to, to know more about how they play, why they make the decisions they do. But I wonder if... It, if apart from the the branding aspect of this, if maybe that's just a healthier way to be an elite athlete, like if if you're focused on all the noise you're making off the court, maybe that's a distraction. Um, I mean, do you think that that Nick could he could keep his troublemaking ways, his his willingness to say whatever he wants, his willingness to make enemies around the sport? Could he do that and become a perennial top five player? It's a great question. I mean, some of what he talked about on the, on no challenges remaining was describing his sense of sort of wonder and alienation from, from the other players. Like they were almost another species. Like they were so locked in and so, um, so focused on one thing to the, to the extent that they were basically dull in every other way. It was sort of like um, the the David Foster Wallace piece on Michael Joyce as told by Nick Kyrgios. Um, and it, it ties into what we've talked about on recent episodes about focus being a skill. And Kyrgios said as much and said it's just a He said, I think it is a skill and it's a skill I don't really have. He described playing doubles with Bernard Tomic and realizing how far he was from the norm when he realized that his doubles partner was more focused than he was. <laughs> um, so 
I guess the, the, the other question is like, could you like be supremely focused and intense and, and, you know, ready to do all the hard work off the court and all, all the things you hear are necessary to succeed. Could you do all that and also be colorful and be a media personality? Um, I don't know, maybe Serena Williams fits that bill. I don't know. I don't know enough about her, her practice regimen. I'm trying to think of like who, you know, well, John Andy McEnroe. Murray was, so, yeah, John, Ma- well, I don't know how hard, and, and McEnroe took breaks, and it, Curious is often compared to McEnroe, but, like, not quite as much of a genius as McEnroe. Yeah. Um, well, and know, Murray, the, level of the, the, the level of competition is higher, and just the general level yeah. of focus. Like, yes. I think, especially back in Rod Laver's day, but certainly certainly still in, in McEnroe's day, it was, it was not an unusual thing to go out drinking. Um during tournaments. But I think now the fact that Kyrgios says he did that is that that is like truly alien to most players experience, at least at the top. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also think of Andy Murray, who's the guy Kyrgios always seemed to love the most among top players. And that came through in the podcast too. And I mean, he clearly works incredibly hard, but also was always very candid and, and funny, even if in a very dry way with the press and very active on social media or somewhat active on social media. So I wonder if Murray is, is, is sort of the balance that, that Kyrgios could hope to, to achieve. Yeah. I would think if, if I were Kyrgios's psychologist slash advisor or something that maybe the way you'd sell that is to say like, okay, Andy Murray is hyper-focused. He's, 100% 100% in on the tennis, but that doesn't mean he has to compromise who he is or what he believes in. And I think that's the difference between him and the rest of the big four is I think the the other three are are so polished most of the time um, that if they did have strong opinions, uh, then we wouldn't hear about them. Whereas with Murray, you feel like you would. Um, so... Yeah, that might be the the middle ground to aim for. It's still a, a big compromise for Curios to make from where he is right now. Um, anything else on the Curios podcast we should touch on? He was, I think, suspended and disciplined for saying some terrible things in a match against Dan Vavrinka a couple of years ago, which also dragged in Donna Vekic and were sexist and. Uh, he was basically like, yeah, I'm more mature now. I know where the mic is. I wouldn't say something when I'm mic. So, you know, he's, like I said, on balance, I think he's good for the sport, but I think there's a lot he could do to improve. Yeah, that, that is true. Um, yeah, I can't, I, when it comes to things like throwing chairs, I just can't wrap my head around not being able to stop that. Like if, I can I can understand getting really angry and feeling like the world is unjust, but I can't imagine not being able to just bottle it up, lose the match, and go home. But maybe that's why I have a tennis podcast, and Nick Curios is one of the best tennis players on earth. The things we'll never know. Um, so I think that'll do it for this week. Carl, as always, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. Um... We'll all be looking ahead to the French Open draws in a few days, and qualifying is already underway. There's several completed matches already on Monday in the on the men's draw. So 
enjoy that in in some form or other the tennis abstract podcast will be back next weekend either saturday sunday or monday probably sunday next week so keep an eye out for that um thanks for listening and we'll see you then